But as we uh, get started this morning, I wanted to share a little bit about uh, what we've been kind of uh, working through as a family. A couple months ago, about a month and a half ago actually, we decided to get a dog just because we felt like we needed more living creatures to be responsible for at our stage of parenting. So we got a dog, we drove down to basically north of San Diego to pick up this little puppy, a mini golden doodle, and we named him Samwise. Samwise. For those of you who know, that's the Lord of the Rings reference to this character right behind me. Samwise Gamgee from the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's epic masterpiece, and probably one of my favorite characters in all of the trilogy, that is Lord of the Rings. And for a number of reasons, but in particular, from this scene right here, this is at the end of the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, and Samwise, he's, but right prior to this, he's on the shore, he sees Frodo about to leave, he's in the boat by himself, and Samwise is like, I'm gonna, I made a promise, and I'm committed to sticking with Frodo. And so Samwise can't swim, and he makes his way through, and he's about to drown, and Frodo comes back for him, reaches his hand, pulls him out, and Samwise comes into the boat, and Samwise in tears is like, Mr. Frodo, I made a promise. I made a promise. Gandalf said, don't leave him, Samwise. Don't leave him. And Samwise responds, I intend not to do that. I intend to stick with him. And there's something about that, about what Samwise is as a friend, that sticking withness, that I made a promise. I made a promise not to leave you, Mr. Frodo. There's something about that scene and that image of what it means to be a friend that, to me, really resonates. And as we dive into our text this morning, we're going to be back in 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn up to 1 Samuel chapter 20. And as you're turning there, what we're diving back into is that we've been going through the Old Testament for well over a year now since the beginning of 2021. It's kind of slowly working our way through, and today we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 20. And it's a story about two characters primarily, with a third in there but primarily David and Jonathan. And David and Jonathan is this beautiful story about this beautiful friendship between these two men. And as we dive into this text, this is exactly what we're going to be talking about, this idea of committed. I'm not going to leave you friendship. Now, before we dive into the text, just because it's been about a month and a half or so since we've been in 1 Samuel, just a quick, you know, by way of review, where have we been so far in the book? And a kind of way to capture this is there's really three primary characters that you should kind of be familiar with. The first is King Saul. King Saul, at the beginning of the book, is the one who becomes the first king of Israel. His reign starts off really great, but because of a series of disobediences to the Lord, Yahweh says the kingdom is going to be taken from you. And as a result of that, Saul is essentially ticked, he's mad, he's fearful, and he goes into this crazy mental state of wanting to cause harm, especially in the second character that you should know about, David's life. David is actually Saul's son-in-law. There's family dynamics going on there. But David is this, this king who's going to basically take over the throne of Israel, the little shepherd boy that no one really knows about, no one really cared about. But David's the one who's on the rise. But David still hasn't officially become king because Saul, this maniac father-in-law, is basically coming after him over the past few chapters. Now, in between this family dynamic of King Saul, who's about to lose his position, and King David, who's ascending to the throne, is this man named Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's son and one of David's best friends. And Jonathan, we find, throughout this story in particular today, is going to show deep loyalty, not to his own father, but to his friend David. Now, with kind of all that by way of background, let's dive into the text, starting in verse 1 of chapter 20. The text reads this. 
Then David fled from Nioth of Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? Now, if you're kind of just tracking with the story, what's happening is David is, finds himself on the run back in chapter 19. So he's coming to Jonathan going, what have I done? Why am I being chased? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he, Jonathan, said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives, and as you lives, there is but a step between me and death. Now, pay attention to the language here. Notice the loyalty that Jonathan is showing David. And think a little bit about the context here, because in the ancient Near East, when a new king is coming into power, one of the first things that that king would do is basically eliminate any and all threats to the throne. So Jonathan would be usually target number one. We've got to eliminate Jonathan, because it's Jonathan, if you think about it, who should be in line to be king if Saul remains king. But Jonathan understands what the Lord is up to, and is showing this tremendous loyalty to David, his friend. But look how the story continues. Because there's this plan that's going to happen. There's this plan because Jonathan needs to help David understand what kind of mental state is Saul, his father-in-law, going to be in. How is David going to know what exactly Saul's intentions are? So Jonathan helps David come up with this plan. The plan is simply this, that David is going to go hiding for a few days. David's going to go hiding for a few days, and after a few days, Saul is eventually going to notice, where in the world is David? He's missing from the dinner table. Where did he go? And so Jonathan's plan is, okay, if, if my father, Saul, reacts in sort of a negative way, he's outraged, he's mad, he's ticked, then we know my father-in-law, or my father, Saul's intentions are, David, to harm you. But... If my father is, you know, well-mannered and he's okay and he's not going to, like, throw a fit that you're missing, then we know that Saul is, you know, he's, he's going to be okay. He's not going to come after you. But the question, though, for David, if David's going to go into hiding for a few days, how is David going to know the reaction of Saul, his father-in-law, when he's with Jonathan at the dinner table? How is David going to know what exactly Saul is thinking and feeling and what Saul's intentions are? Here's the plan. And it relies on the friendship between David and Jonathan. Look at verse 10. Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So both went out into the field. Now, it's here in this, in this scene that Jonathan's going to give some of the details as to how this is going to work out. How Jonathan is going to be able to communicate with David while he's in hiding. But before that, notice this language starting in verse 16. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as his own soul. Notice that language. He loved him as his own soul talking about this friendship, this relationship, this committedness to one another. Two observations from what we've just read so far about this friendship, about this relationship. Number one, the affection that's shown here. 
Biblically speaking, friendship, I think, is to have a sense of affection to one another. Feeling, emotion, connectedness, a desire to want to be with, a desire to want to remain connected with one another. Again, that language that Jonathan loved him as his own soul. But then secondly, first observation of affection, the second one, notice the language of covenant. They made a covenant again together. Now there's a big Bible word for you, right? Oftentimes we talk about how God makes a covenant with his people, this commitment, this promise, this never giving up sort of promise. We talk about the marriage covenant, the same idea there, right? This committedness, not based on personal preferences, but through the thick and thin, remaining together. But here, in 1 Samuel 20, we have language of covenant to describe a friendship. Think about that for a moment. I don't know about you, but I don't necessarily think about friendship in terms of covenant, of sticking with it together no matter what. But here in the text... The language, David and Jonathan make this covenant together. And here's the big idea. That covenant transcends personal preference. And if we think about friendship in this way, that friendship is not primarily just about what can I get, what can I receive, what about my own preferences and ideas and plans, but about the other, about giving oneself to the other, that covenantal biblical friendship is meant to transcend personal preference. And it's a promise a commitment. It's Samwise in the boat. Mr. Frodo, I made a promise not to leave you. And David and Jonathan are essentially saying the same thing to each other. Look how the story thus plays out then. Verse 19. This is Jonathan speaking. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And then verse 20. This is how Jonathan's going to be able to communicate with David. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send a boy saying, go find the arrows. Now, if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go for the Lord has sent you away. And as for that matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. Now just to kind of recap what exactly we just read there. What Jonathan is telling David is that David, as you're hiding, on the third day what's going to happen is I'm going to have someone shoot some arrows. And depending on where they land, near or far, is going to be how we are able to communicate with one another as to how my father Saul responds to you being missing. Now, can anyone guess how is Saul going to react to David being missing? He's furious. He's ticked. He's so mad that he's even now, in the, in the, as the story continues, wants to even harm his own son, Jonathan. He's lost his mind. And so there becomes this kind of tragic sort of moment towards the end of the chapter in verse 41. Because now David really knows that I am not safe around Saul. And so we see this friendship dynamic play out in verse 41. David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Again, that language of affection there. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be, be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. Now, quick, simple observation. What we just read 
was two committed, covenanted friends having to say goodbye to one another. That goodbyes are a part of friendship. I'm going to touch on that more in a moment. But before we kind of dive into some everyday life stuff, how this text lands for us today, I want to take a quick stop in a little bit of church history and kind of share a little bit about how our brothers and sisters throughout the history past have actually talked about friendship in very similar ways to our text this morning. Because honestly, it's really just within the past couple hundred years that friendship is more about kind of my own personal preference and individualism and about just kind of what I can get out of it and really that friends don't really have a say in my life. So let's do a little bit of church history and then we'll land in our day today. Sound okay? So one, one historian, one writer who talked about friendship noted how throughout church history, friendship was more often described in like how we would describe it today, like a submarine. Deep with a few people, but in our day, friendship is more like a cruise ship on the surface with way too many people to keep track of, right? <laughs> Wesley Hill in his amazing book on friendship called Spiritual Friendship talks about this idea that back in the 1800s, just a few hundred years ago in England, committed Christians would make public vows of friendship to one another. Can you imagine that? How, kind of, how weird is that? <laughs> Right? But like how awesome is that at the same time? And that's just a couple hundred years ago. Now, friendship, think about it in our culture. In some ways, it's this very much valued relationship. Like we love friends, we, we love this idea of friendship, but it's not talked about in like permanent sort of terms. Lifelong covenant permanent terms. And that's where I think some of the difference is. Now, this doesn't mean that all friendships are going to always last forever and that there's never seasons where people have to move or they have to say goodbyes. Or again, we'll talk about that in a moment. David and Jonathan have to say goodbye at the end of the chapter here. We'll talk about that. But then a little bit back further into history, 13th century, a monk, St. Alred of Ravalu, talked about three different kinds of friendship. Again, this is in the 13th century. Now, if you can get past some of the medieval language that I'm about to use here, there's a ton of gold here, I think. And he talked about three different kinds of friendship. The first being carnal friendship. And what he meant by carnal friendship was basically those kinds of people that you interact with where basically you just play to your own vices and desires and it's about what feels good for you and collectively together you're just having a good time in the name of what feels good. For many of you this was like your undergrad years, right? The people you hung out in college with. Carnal friendship. The second kind of friendship he talked about was worldly friendship. Now, he wasn't necessarily meaning it in how we in Christian circles might talk about worldly sort of things. What he meant by worldly friendship was those relationships that were primarily about mutual advancement in life, primarily in vocation. I'm connected with you, you're connected with me because we are mutually helping each other achieve something, progress towards something in our vocations or just life in general. But then, St. Alred talked about a third kind of friendship, spiritual friendship. And spiritual friendship is akin to what we read about here in 1 Samuel 20, this committed, lifelong commitment to one another. Spiritual friendship, not this idea of like kind of just having your heads up in the clouds, but no, practical, everyday, nitty-gritty, life-on-life relationships. Where what holds you together is this mutual desire and commitment to point each other to the way of Jesus. And St. Allred would argue that this is exactly what we all long for. These deep, committed friendships where we're mutually pointing each other to the person and work of Jesus. 
Now, as we think about some of this, and we think about our everyday life here, a few hundred years later, a few thousand years later, depending on what you're thinking about as far as history goes, how then might we develop and maintain and foster this sense of robust friendship and connection? How might we sort of become the kinds of people where this is becoming more and more the norm, more and more kind of what we breathe, what we interact with as far as our friendships go? Now, on one level, as we think and as we talk about, like, how can we have good friendships? How can we have good relationships? There's a part of me that's a bit like, well, to kind of give, like, the practical three steps to being an amazing friend is a little bit like giving, like, three steps to tell, like, a really, really funny joke, right? My friend Keith was over the other night, part of our young adults group, and he was making kind of this exact point about how we were, it was on a Wednesday with our young adults ministry over, and how there's just this beautiful sense of friendship and community that's really developed over the past year or so. And he was talking about how, like, if he had to write down, like, the three or four steps of, like, how to have, like, great friendships in this community, like, you know, say hello, you know, don't show up late, and smile a lot. Like, it kind of loses, like, the magic punch at that moment, right? In the same way, like, if you, like, give four steps to, like, tell a funny joke, you know, say this at this point, pause for three seconds, and then kind of laugh at yourself to kind of let the crowd know it's time to laugh, right? Like, it ceases to be a joke the moment you kind of dissect it too much. Does that make sense? Because there's something organic about, like, a really funny joke that you really just can't explain. And there's something organic and intangible about great friendships that a lot of times it's hard to, like, put your finger on, like, what exactly is making that work? What exactly is happening in that sort of context or that relationship? And so with that caveat said, I still want to kind of point to a few kind of practical things at the same time. Noting, though, that as God works in our relationships, there's often something intangible at play. The Spirit's at work. You can't dissect it and boil it down to like four or five easy steps and just like, poof, here's a cookie-cutter recipe for you now. Leave this week. You're going to have amazing friendships if you follow my sage advice over the next five minutes. That's not what this is about. But with that said, a couple of kind of quick things kind of based off our text and what we've talked about this morning. More on the how side. The first is this. Number one, face-to-face. Face-to-face. And what I mean by this is especially in a cultural moment that is so into screens and digital addiction and all, all these digital ways of communicating, I think it's vitally important to prioritize face-to-face communication and relationship as much as possible. Now, I'm going to make one of the most obvious observations in biblical interpretation history that you've ever heard. You ready? David and Jonathan had a face-to-face conversation. We're like, no, duh. Like, what other options did they have? Like, carrier pigeons? Like, there's no other way for them to communicate, right? But think about it. In our context, there is a bajillion different ways where we can have deep, real, personal conversations that aren't face-to-face, but often aren't as effective and mutually edifying. Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle John writes one of the shortest books in the Bible, 2 John. And he writes this in 2 John chapter 12, or verse 12. It's only one chapter, there's no 12 chapters. Anyway, verse 12 of 2 John. Though I have much to, to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk to you face to face, so that our joy may be complete. See that? I have much to say to you. 
I have so much that's on my heart that I could write about it. I could write a note, but I'd rather talk to you face to face so that our joy might be complete. And as I was thinking about this verse in particular and about our kind of modern context, I kind of took the liberty to do kind of like my best Eugene Peterson moment. Eugene Peterson, for those of you who don't know, is the person who trans- or paraphrased the Bible and the message, kind of making it in a more kind of modern context or modern kind of language. So here's kind of like my best like Eugene Peterson paraphrase on 2 John 12. Though I have much to say to you, I'd rather not use text message or IG messenger and definitely not email, but instead I will come talk to you face to face so that your joy may be complete. Again, I'm not down on technology and all the different ways and the, the gift that FaceTime can be and all those sorts of things. But I do, I can't help but wonder, what if we were more intentional about prioritizing face-to-face conversation in our friendships and our relationships? What, what is that kind of like next step for you in this sort of realm, in this regard? To be more intentional about having especially those deep, important conversations in a face-to-face sort of way. That's the first thing. Number two, though, encouragement. Encouragement. Pastor Gavin Ortland, a, a pastor, writer, someone I deeply respect, said this on Twitter about a year ago, and you're like, can anything good come out of Twitter? Here's one thing. He said this. When I practice deliberate encouragement to others, it's amazing how often someone says, this came at exactly the right time, and I really needed that today. I've included, or concluded, that people are walking around needing encouragement like 80% of the time. And it's good to remember this. And in particular, though, not just kind of general encouragement, but specific encouragement that's detailed, that's memorable, that's personal. I don't know about you, but how many of us are in seasons and stages and have days where when someone sends you that text or that note or just that coming up to you and saying, brother, sister, your name, this specifically really encourages me, encourages me about you. But that does something that lifts our spirits, that lifts the joy, that lifts sort of the vitality of our, our day. And it's in those moments like, yes, I needed to hear that. I needed that. And what would it look like to become the kind of people that, that had these friendships, these relationships, where the default was to have this specific, regular pattern of encouragement in one another's lives. I can't help but wonder what that might do to kind of revamp and rebuild some of the relationships that we might face. Now, all of what I just said there is not like earth-shattering, like wisdom from on high that's going to like just change and revolutionize friendships today. That's not the intent or the point of that. But simply just kind of two quick things that kind of come to mind. As you think about the encouragement that David and Jonathan were to one another, the fact that through this difficult moment, they are face-to-face together having this conversation. But like I've alluded to a couple times now, the story at the end of chapter 20 doesn't end with them like kumbaya, riding off together forever and ever as deep friends. The story ends with a goodbye. The story ends with these deep covenanted friends having to part ways. And as we think about friendship, we think about these relationships that are so dear to us. Many of us, most of us probably in this room have had these moments, these seasons where you've had to have a goodbye. The friendship ends in the sense, not that you're like enemies now, but that it's just different. 
because of, of a move, because of a change of life, a change of season, a goodbye, whatever the case might be. What about then? How do we lean into that as followers of Jesus? Because if we're honest, goodbyes are a more regular part of friendship than I think oftentimes we really want to have. And so as we think about this for a moment, there's a lot we could say here. If we think about our story this morning, David and Jonathan having to say goodbye, one of the things that is often really hard about these seasons of goodbyes is that when a really close friend leaves or moves on, there's something, yes, where you miss that friendship, you miss that relationship. But then the, the, the friends that are remaining, the relationships that are remaining, those often change as well. Because that friend that has now moved on used to, when they were more present in the same location, so to speak, would bring and draw out something of those other friends together. And so now there's like this double mourning of that relationship that you once had that was more kind of consistent because you're more physically in the same area and the fact that that friend brought out and drew out different aspects of your own personality and the personalities of other people that are still connected with. This is exactly what C.S. Lewis and Tolkien would talk about as friends. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, C.S. Lewis, who wrote Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, would meet with a few other folks as they were writing some of their work together on a regular basis. And they had this little group called the Inklings. And they would talk about their writing, they would talk about life and theology and all the different things that they would have fine time to talk about. And at one moment, C.S. Lewis is writing about how one of their mutual friends, Charles Williams, passed away. And how when Charles died, there was a loss not in the sense that the relationship and friendship between Lewis and Charles is now different, but look at how C.S. Lewis writes about this. He says, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, now that there's been this goodbye, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction. Ronald is J.R.O. Token. I shall never see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. From having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Do you see what he's saying there? That when there's that goodbye, when they have to say goodbye to Charles, there's not just the goodbye to Charles. There's a goodbye to a part of the remaining friendships and relationships as well. Because Charles would draw out something of Ronald and Lewis that only Charles could draw out of. And I often think there's something that's similar at play in our friendships, in our dynamics. When someone moves away, yes, that is a hard goodbye. But that person that we're saying goodbye to brought something else out of our remaining friendships that are there that we also grieve and mourn and loss at the same time. There's a double mourning that takes place. And what ends up happening, I notice this in myself, in these seasons of having to say goodbye over the past few months, we've had to say goodbye to some really some really, really close friends. And over the next few months, we'll say goodbye to some more really, really close friends. And you invest and you build 
and these friendships are so life-giving. In that moment of having to say goodbye, there's yes, that, that yes, saying goodbye to that friendship, but also it's not as the same as it once was as, the, as, that person, as that person leaves. And what ends up happening in my own heart, and I know I've talked with many of you about this as well, is there's often this tendency of, and it's so much energy to invest in new friendships again and again for those that are remaining and for those that even move on. And there can become this tendency of, oh, I don't want to redo this again. I don't want to reinvest again because it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of intentionality. I'd rather just kind of keep myself guarded, stay comfortable with like the remaining friendships I have, and not risk being vulnerable again. Not risk opening my heart up again to new friendships, to new relationships, only to have that sort of goodbye moment happen again. And so we want to protect ourselves. And we don't want to really invest as much as we probably should as followers of Jesus. But here's what, not that this sermon is sponsored by C.S. Lewis, but here's another (laughs) C.S. Lewis quote to, to capture this. He says this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be broken or to be, to be vulnerable. You see what he's getting at there? And these moments of goodbyes are an opportunity to step into a new season of vulnerability, a new season of transformation. Because it's in those moments where we want to hide and kind of retreat and not step into engaging in a deeper friendship and a deeper relationship with new people, that we're missing out on opportunities to the Spirit work and transform in our lives. We miss out on these opportunities for the Spirit to take us to these places of being vulnerable, of opening ourselves up, of saying yes to God's leading and guiding, that even though, yes, goodbyes are hard, these moments and these seasons of having to to say that, yes, we probably won't see each other as much, We might not have as much regular communication. The the dynamics might change a little bit. But to lean into that and not retreat back to, I just want to be comfortable. I'm not going to re-engage. We miss out on the opportunity to become more of a person of love as the Spirit works in our friendships, in our relationships. And I firmly believe that as we see so many wonderful people in our lives, that yes, we sometimes have to say goodbye to you, both for the people that might be leaving and for us that remain and stay here in PG. There's an opportunity in both ends there. I've talked with so many people as they're getting ready to move for the next you know, assignment or whatever the case might be. There's this sense of like, fear in some ways. There's a sense of uncertainty. There's this sense of, oh my goodness, I have to kind of rebuild my friendships, rebuild those relationships. And there's this tendency to kind of keep yourself guarded. To recognize that, yes, it's been so amazing here at Wellspring. It's been so amazing to be a part of so many great friendships here that now I have to revamp and redo that again. And that risk that that takes, that risk to be vulnerable, 
to not step into that is to, again, miss out on the opportunities that the Spirit has to bring transformation and growth in our lives. And for those of us who are here, having to say those goodbyes, that yes, the dynamics and the friendships might change, but what does it look like to continue to be that welcoming presence, that welcoming intentional presence in the lives of the people that are coming through? To say yes to what the Spirit has as far as building those connections, however that might end up being. Whether there's going to be a goodbye in a year or two or in 10 years, what does it look like to still intentionally invest, to be vulnerable, and to allow the Spirit to work in us and through us as he changes us in those moments? Now, as I invite the worship team uh, to come up, and if you're uh, serving communion, you can come up as well over to my right here. We have an opportunity as we kind of transition to remember what Jesus has done for us as his friends. You know, Jesus, as we think about communion, we're remembering his sacrifice for us, what he's done for us to set us free from sin and death and the devil. But in that moment where Jesus is transforming us, he's remaking us, he's befriending us, but on that night that Jesus was with his friends, with his disciples, just hours before he would be betrayed by one of his friends, and hours before that he would sacrifice his life for his friends, Jesus said this sort of famous line in John 15, that greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down their life for their friends. In that moment where Jesus is describing about what's about to happen in his own life as he gives himself, uses the analogy of friendship to describe what's about to happen. Jesus could have said, greater love has no one than this, that a spouse lay down their life for their spouse. Jesus could have said, greater love has no one than this, that a parent lay down their life for their child. And that would have been perfectly fine. But he didn't do that. He said, greater love has no one than this, that a friend lay down their life for one another. Meaning this, that this is the, the great equalizer. That all of us are invited to be this kind of friend to one another. Because of the friend that Jesus is to us the friend of sinners. And that as we think about the, the, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, what we're remembering this morning is this act of sacrifice. Jesus is befriending of us sinners. And so as we are invited to come up, you can come down the center aisle and there'll be folks to my right and left here. Before we go into that, I wanted to do some, one last thing that's going to be a little bit different. Maybe this will work, maybe it won't. But at the risk of it not working, there's a, a short little hymn that speaks to this that many of you know. And I was wondering if we could all stand and sing a cappella, the first verse or the first line of that. It'll be up on the screen. And it's this beautiful, these words really capture, I think, Jesus' friendship to us. 
his sacrifice, his love, and our response to that, giving us a pattern to follow as we seek to be friends to one another. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Jesus, we thank you so much for your friendship to us. We thank you that we can come to you griefs and sorrow, worry, joy and hope, and that you are near to us, calling us your friend. So Jesus, as we intentionally reflect upon your broken body, your shed blood, we thank you, Jesus, so much. We love you, we thank you, we pray these things in your name, amen. amen. As the worship team plays, feel free to come down the center aisle here and there'll be folks to pass out communion to you.